Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet the co-founder of a startup company that makes technology for holographic displays. We discover how double anonymous peer review can reduce gender bias in physics. And we chat about the International Year of Glass with the events chair. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics. Are you a scientist working in renewable energy, wearable sensor technology, display materials, or infrastructure sustainability? You have the opportunity to present your research at the world's leading forum on electrochemistry and solid-state science. Submit your abstract by April 8th for the 242nd Electrochemical Society meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, in October 2022. Visit the ECS website at electrochem.org for details about abstract submission. And join ECS in accelerating science. First up in this episode, Physics World's Tammy Freeman speaks with the co-founder of an award-winning company that makes laser-powered photonic integrated circuits for a range of applications, including displays, medicine, and telecommunications. I'm speaking today with Jonas Seiner, co-founder of Vitria Lab, a photonic startup company based in Vienna. Hello, Jonas. Hi, Tammy. Nice to meet you. Vitria Lab was the winning company in the recent 12th annual SPIE Startup Challenge, which showcases new photonics businesses and products. The company is developing unique display technologies based on laser-powered photonic integrated circuits made by writing tiny waveguides into glass. So, Jonas, can you describe how these waveguides are created and how you use them to make your laser-lit chips? So, what we're doing is essentially um, taking a standard piece of display glass, like the glass you have in the screen right in front of you, and we put it in our system. And our system just um, is composed of a femtosecond pulse laser and a stage that can move this glass around. And then what we do is we, we focus this laser in a specific position in 3D inside the glass and kind of locally melt the glass. And this raises the index of refraction. And then if you, if you kind of string along this modification, you get what we call a, a light channel or a waveguide. Because uh, the index of the glass is raised at this point, what you have is totally internal reflection. And very similar to an optical fiber, um, light is guided in this mode. And then you have... Your waveguide inside the glass, you can make as many waveguides as you want in 3D. They're microscopic in size, they have a diameter of like 2-3 microns, so much, much uh, thinner than a human hair. And uh, out of these we build very complex networks. So we, we distribute the light coming from a single laser diodes to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of uh, separate laser beams. And this then allows us to build this display complex. And is this the, the laser-lit chip once you've put all the waveguides in? Is that what you refer to as the laser-lit chip? 
Yes, exactly. So the laser lit chip is essentially um, this technology integrated also with some nanoimprint layer on the glass surface that reshapes the beams a little bit and makes them come out in the way that we want and focus. But yeah, the laser lit chip essentially is a piece of glass that emits a very dense array of laser beams in red, green and blue. And the beams are so tightly spaced that you can actually slot this, this panel behind the standard LCD panel and you're going to have one laser beam per pixel. <laughs> And since you can't see essentially the, the pixels in the display, you can imagine how, how dense this beam array is. And yeah, I mean, if you do then that, you can uh, create quite a lot of new um, display types in 3D, 2D, AR, and so forth. Yes, so I mean, what, what are the main benefits of using these laser-lit chips within displays? Uh, yeah, I, I think one thing to, to realize is that um, even after decades of development, the displays we have today are actually fairly bad in many aspects. And uh, just to describe how an LCD typically works, it's just having a rectangular wide light source, like an LED in the back of the screen. And then you have a filter array in front of it that just subtract the light. And then uh, with the, where the subtraction arrives at the image that should be shown, but it's an incredible wasteful process. So you waste like 95% of the light that's being emitted. And now you look at the screen, it has a reasonable brightness, but you can imagine how incredible bright the screen actually has to be in the back. And this drains the battery, of course, of your laptop, of your, of your smartphone tremendously. And the thing that we're essentially doing, we just make the light flow much easier through um, this entire stack of the liquid crystals. So there's not, it doesn't scatter around, it doesn't hit color filters, it doesn't hit polarizers. Um, and in this way, we can conceptually go from like 5% transmission through the display stack, we go and go to 90 this, of course, then makes a huge jump possible in overall energy efficiency. And this is what we always see also with partners. This is the strongest draw in what we can do for standard 2D panels, that you can get a tremendous increase in energy efficiency. You also get much better color gamut because lasers with their narrow spectrum are very, very good color sources. And you also get better contrast because you don't have all the scattering going on in your display. But energy efficiency is what seems to be the biggest advantage. Okay, great. And um. I see that you're also using your laser-lit chips. You want to use them to create the first full holographic display. So how will that work? Yeah, I mean, uh, the thing to understand about holography, because it's a very often misused uh, physics terms, let's say, it's often misused in marketing that everything that's a 3D display is a hologram. And I have to state it's not. So if we talk, uh, we talk about holographic displays, we're talking about, um, by definition, something that's interference and laser-based. And so essentially how a holographic display works is you have to have a huge um, laser wavefront, something very nice and continuous. And then you can make like tiny modulations via pixel, you make phase shifts. And you, out of this, you can create then a complex wavefront, which it, it encapsulates essentially your entire image. And what's our unique capability here is to provide this um, wavefront, um, this, this laser light coming out that you need to, to produce a holographic image. In, in a kind of form factor that nobody else can do, right? Because typically what you would want to do is you just go to your lab, you take a laser, you widen up the beam with a big lens, and eventually you let that impinge on your, on your panel. But that's not practical for consumer product. And that's when where we come in then, we, we take that, we miniaturize all that, we are able to control the laser light very well, and then we enable essentially this holographic backlight component. And hence make then consumer holographic displays possible. Okay, so um, has the company released, released products yet, or, or are you still in the R&D stages? We're still in the, in the early uh, R&D stages. Um, so we've been developing this technology now since three years. 
Uh, what we've shown now in on our YouTube channel and also Photonics West at the conference is like the first proof of concept um, chip, which like like 15 times 15 millimeter, 20 times 20 millimeter, where we then can show um, uh, color images um, using our laser lit chip and just a off-the-shelf LCD component. And the cool thing you already can show there is that uh, you can um, produce color images using um, uh, um, an LCD without color filters. So essentially in monochrome display unit, but because we illuminate each pixel with the correct color with our separate beams, we can create color images out of that. Okay, and what do you think will be sort of, once you do get this product on the market, what do you think will be the main target? We're we talking sort of massive displays or like mobile phone displays? Or... I, I think our first target for sure is not going to be TV size <laughs> because you would also need a lot of laser dyes just to create this radiant flux that you would need to have the brightness. And also the advantages are not very large there anymore because you're just talking about color gamma in contrast. So what we are targeting at the moment is mostly mobile to laptop. So this kind of size. Maybe also if you want to go to monitor size for 3D, could be interesting, let's say 25, 28 inches, but definitely nothing larger than that at the current stage at least. Yeah, I mean, I guess the fact that the sort of the power reduction is going to be really important for things like, you know, phone displays and, and small things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did some testing and it seems that, for example, in a, in a laptop, when you're just web surfing, at least half of your energy is just going to the display. Um, so if you can reduce it by like 80, 90%, of course, it will make a tremendous difference uh, for your runtime. Yeah. And something similar should be, should be also true for, for smartphones. It's a bit more difficult to evaluate because your smartphone is, of course, off also a lot of the time. So what statement can you actually make? But also if you're surfing on your smartphone, I would, I would presume like uh, at least half, possibly more of the energy is just going towards the screen and powering this up. Okay, um, and then finally, I mean, how do you feel about winning the SPIE Startup Challenge? And, and why do you think Vitria Lab was, was chosen as the winner? Well, I, I hope we were chosen because we delivered a good pitch and the, uh, the jury members were very happy with what we presented. Like, uh, so we, we make the statement that we can fundamentally change essentially what displays can do and bring them into a new era, into the laser era. And I think this really resonated with them, and also that we we had evidence that we can actually that we can actually do this with these proof of concept devices. We were showing in another booth actually during during Photonics West, and yeah, it's it's a great boost for us because it's a, it's a quite a renowned award. Um, it's something that validates us uh, with this kind of very different display technology than what everybody else everybody else does. It's uh, certainly helping us a lot in our outreach activities, and we have now a lot of follow up meetings from that conference from that award where we're trying to leverage also this, uh, this new network that we have. Excellent. Well, I look forward to, you know, seeing the first products out on the market and, and following, following the company's progress. Um, well, thanks very much for speaking to me today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Tuesday, the 8th of March was International Women's Day with people around the world focusing on how to achieve gender equality. Gender equality is also an important issue in scholarly publishing, because female authors can be subjected to gender bias when their papers are peer-reviewed by other scientists. Double anonymous peer review offers a way of eliminating gender bias. And to talk about it, I'm joined by Kim Eggleton, who is Research Integrity and Inclusion Manager at IOP Publishing, which also publishes Physics World. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. 
So, so we both work for IOP Publishing, which is a scholarly publisher. What, what does the company know about gender bias in scientific publishing and peer review? A lot more than we did. Um, we started looking at this maybe four years ago now, um, we, and we really didn't know anything at that point. Um, we had absolutely no idea. And we, we looked through our own data, and we also started looking at the published literature and there is definitely bias. It's probably not a great surprise um, within peer review and publishing. So some of the studies we looked at were finding reviewers of both genders appeared to set a higher bar for female authored papers. And our own data back in 2018 suggested that there was a difference in acceptance rate for men versus women, with articles written by men being more likely to be accepted. We also know, again, from published work and our own data, that women are underrepresented both in the reviewer pool, so the people who assess the articles, and on editorial boards, which can be often the people making the sort of accept or reject decisions. So not only are women underrepresented, they're also getting a, an unfair deal when they're trying to publish their work. Um, it's worth saying there are other types of bias at play as well, which is probably no surprise. There's evidence for geographical bias, for racial bias, um, and probably the least unsurprising one, reputational bias. It does most often appear to be unconscious, um, but there have been times when reviewer comments have been quite clearly sexist or biased in some way, you know, referring to this person only studies at this institution, it's probably no good. Um, so we take great care not to let those comments get through to authors and make sure those reviewers are educated that, you know, that's not okay. Your job is to assess the science and not the person, you know, conducting the science. But it certainly seems like, again, from the published literature and our own data, that women are not getting a fair shake when they're submitting their work for peer review. And, you know, in STEM in particular, we already know that women are underrepresented, especially the further up the career ladder they go. We see that leaky pipeline effect. And so we want to make sure that we're not adding to that career prestige is made and broken on where you publish for right or wrong and um, that's how the system currently works and so if women are getting an unfair deal when it comes to publication it's another way that they're not going to succeed and we we really wanted to be a positive part of change and try and do something about that and what is double anonymous peer review and how can it help to reduce gender bias and and other biases so it's it's sort of what it says on the tin. Um, it used to be referred to as double blind, but the industry's moving away from that now and using anonymous rather than blind. And it basically means that the reviewers don't get to see who the authors are. So if I've received a paper that's been sent to me from a journal and they want me to review it and take a look at whether it's right for publication or not, I have no idea who's written that paper under the double anonymous system. So it stops me as a reviewer appropriating any bias to whoever wrote that paper you know be it um be it gender bias or ethnicity bias um I, i'm i'm hopefully just assessing the science um and we've seen this used in other scenarios with great success so a few of the scenarios it's been used in recruitment is a really obvious one we know that when people's names are removed from their cv um there seems to be a more equal balance both between the sexes and ethnicities of people being invited to interview, for example. We've also seen a great example within physics at the Hubble telescope when they were looking at assigning telescope time 
they noticed that women really weren't getting much telescope time despite putting in a, you know, a high number of applications. And when they switched to a double anonymous method, women's applications suddenly started getting accepted to the point where they're now on a par with men. And I think I recently read that they'd actually gone above the acceptance rate for men. So we know that this works as a system and we know from publishing that it works as well. Double anonymous is the standard in social science publishing, but for STM publishing, so scientific, technical and medical publishing, it's what we call single single anonymous. And that just means the reviewer's identity is kind of protected and kept secret, but the author's identity is known to the reviewers as they go through that process. So we started thinking, well, maybe this double anonymous method could be a really useful tool in addressing the kind of biases that we've seen. So let's start offering it and see what happens. And this was a few years ago now, we started offering authors the choice of double or single in about five of our journals. And we were so pleased with the results and the feedback that we got, especially the qualitative feedback was really remarkable that last year, well, it was probably end of 2020, um, we decided to start using double anonymous as the default method on all our journals. And the data is really, really fantastic. The, um, it suggests that double anonymous reviews are rated as more helpful, more clear, more thorough and more timely by authors. So we know that authors are appreciating um, this offer. And we also found um, that it's dealing not only with the gender bias, but it certainly seems to be dealing with some of the geographical and reputational bias as well. So, so far, we think it's a really, really good thing, but it's early days. We've only moved our final journals over to Double Anonymous in November last year. We're at March now. So knowing how long it takes papers to go through the publication process, we're still going to be collecting data on this for quite some time. Well, that sounds really promising, Kim. So who do you know who um, is set to benefit from a Double Anonymous peer review? So we, we hope that everybody is. We know that from our own data, um, people who identify as women or non-binary seem to be more likely to submit through a double anonymous method than men do. Um, we also know that researchers from specific areas of the world also seem to favour double anonymous. So we're seeing high rates of submission from Africa, the Middle East and Latin America. Interestingly, there's also strong support from Northern Europe, which wasn't necessarily as expected, but really promising to see. We also hope that reviewers are gonna be benefiting from this reviewing is a skill it's not something that's often taught and we're trying to address that separately at iop publishing through our peer review excellence program but it's quite often that you know even phd students possibly even earlier will be thrown a journal article and asked to review it and they've really not had any training on how to do that so removing the bias from the whole system you don't need to worry about the author you don't need to look at you know what they've published previously or where they're from or who they've studied under just judge it on its merits um, and you're much more likely to write a helpful and thorough review. And we've certainly had that feedback from reviewers as well, that it's almost like the sort of the, the pressure has been lifted off their shoulders a little bit and they're free to concentrate on the science rather than be concerned about you know, who it is that they're reviewing. So we hope that it will not only benefit authors who've perhaps not had as fair a shot as they should have done in the past, but also that it will it will help reviewers in some way as well. And us as publishers, you know, we want to contribute to gender equality and all other kinds of equality and make sure that science, the best science, is being published um, and that nobody's getting, you know, a shortcut and no one else is having to 
work considerably harder just to have their views heard. So to coin a very cheesy phrase, we think everyone wins from this kind of method. Well, that, that's really interesting, Kim. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast to talk about it. And um, it sounds like the program's been a success so far. Thank you for having me. From glorious stained glass windows to the optical components that power the internet, glass has been an important technological and artistic material for millennia. And that's why the United Nations is celebrating the International Year of Glass in 2022. As Physics World's James Dacey discovers when he meets the chair of the event. At the start of February, the International Year of Glass got underway with an opening ceremony at the Palace of Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. In the year ahead, scientific and cultural events will celebrate this versatile material that underpins many technologies that are shaping the modern world. Just think about the optical fibres that enable the internet, or the bioglass used to transport vaccines and to help bone regeneration, and the glass used in solar cells, wind turbine blades and other renewable energy technologies. The International Year is officially backed by the United Nations and has a focus on why glass is critical in achieving the UN's 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. To find out more about the International Year, I visited the Autonomous University of Madrid to meet the initiative's chair, Alicia Duran. Alicia played a key role in building support for the project while she was president of the International Commission on Glass between 2018 and 2021. In our conversation, she talks about the year ahead and what she hopes it can achieve. If you could you know, look to the future 10 years from now and you look back at the International Year, and what, what do you hope will be the main legacy of this year? The main legacy that we pretend really is to give visibility. To, uh, to, to the role of, uh, of, uh, of glass in all around, because we, are, we know all the people, when, when you ask the, the people where is it, they are the, the, the glass wares and also the, the, the flat glass for, for, for cars and, uh, and for, uh, really, because the glass is invisible, really. You, you look through, really, and uh, it's invisible. But this is, for example, the, uh, the most uh, important material in, in, in health, really, in biomaterials. Uh, uh, the, the, it has a, a, a really a lot of, of different uh, um, a, a, a roles and applications in, in biomaterials, from uh, the uh, fulfilling of, uh, of bones to, for example, the uh, healing uh, um, so it's like a wounds. scaffold within the yes, body. Yes, the scaffolds mm -hmm. and uh, and go uh, and well and uh, well the most uh, uh, looked uh, for example the, the the glass container for vaccines. Mm -hmm. Is is well, this is a, a very small, but this glass, it was a very a, a, a different because it has a, a very high chemical resistance to not uh, interact with the vaccine, but also a very uh, high uh, thermal um, resistance. 
Why? Because uh, it has to be storage at uh, minus uh, 100. Uh, so uh, it was, uh, it's an example, really, of uh, the design and development in a very, very short time of this specific uh, uh, type of, uh, of, of glass, uh, produced uh, uh, like tubes, and uh, from there produce billions and billions of uh, glass containers for, for our vaccines. But uh, it has also, uh, uh, well, the, the energy, sustainable and um, uh, energies are, uh, uh, well, from the, uh, from the PV glasses, really, for photovoltaic uh, 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 energy, mm -hmm. and also for the, the mirrors for the uh, uh, concentrated glass power and, and uh, the, plants. And the fiberglass for the, the wind turbines as well. It's, yes, it's yeah, the, the, yes, the, the, all the, the, uh, the for, for, for the winds, uh, mm -hmm. really, of eolic energy. Mm -hmm. This is a, a, a composite, but uh, with the, the big ones, uh, these, uh, that uh, they are installed offshore, they have a, a practically 80% of, of, uh, of, of the weight is glass. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in, in, for example, in, 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 in glazings, uh, we say, well, it's a glazing uh, normally, but these glazings, uh, uh, really, they are, uh, uh, provide a perfect isolation thermal, uh, in energy, thermal, and uh, also acoustic. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, with the installing this, uh, uh, the, the normal low, um, uh, low emission um, um, uh, double uh, uh, glazings, for example, permits uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to reduce uh, in a 30% the uh, CO2 emissions uh, by 2030. It's, and, I mean, it's also important for well-being, no? Because you have yeah, 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 yeah. And the disease, they say, well, they are expensive. No, really, to change, to substitute a, a, a one layer, but the two layers mm -hmm. is uh, uh, well. You cover the price by by saving energy for mm -hmm. uh, uh, for both refrigeration in in, in summer and uh, heating in in winter, and uh, you cover this uh, saving in only one year, really. It's uh, amazing. Mm -hmm. So we can have uh, the, the, these big uh, and transparent uh, uh, um, buildings that uh, we, our cities are more and more transparent, but they are neutral in CO2. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, this is uh, really the, uh, the impact in the sustainability. The two-day opening ceremony in Geneva had talks from scientists, engineers, archaeologists, artists and others whose work involves glass. You can still watch those presentations on the UN's web TV portal and we'll make sure to share a link to that on the podcast pages of the Physics World website. I asked Alicia what are some of the other events we can look forward to this year? Well, some that they are like central, really, that there is uh, the International Year of Glass uh, uh, in Berlin, that did we in the first uh, uh, week of uh, July, in which uh, they will also celebrate the 100th anniversary of the DGG, of the German um, 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 Society of, uh, of Glass. In April, this is the Glass Expo in Shanghai, you know, the, 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 the industrial fair is the most important in the world, and it will be totally uh, focus on on the IJOC and uh, with uh, 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 two two weeks uh, of satellite uh, events uh, in which uh, it's uh, very important uh, a conference of today on high technology glass. 
uh, uh, and the, uh, uh, well, all the, fa the glass fairs in, 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 the, uh, in the world in this year will be focused on IJOC. The first uh, in March uh, in, in Mumbai, then the, the, the second in April in, in, in Shanghai, there is uh, a Glassman in Monterey in, in May, Stekla Fair in Moscow in July, and uh, uh, Glastec in uh, Dusseldorf in, in September. So all the glass fairs, really, the, the, the industrial support is uh, really amazing. Organisers of the International Year also hope to inspire students through cultural events and initiatives while addressing gender balance in science and the needs of developing countries. Alicia says there will be some dedicated events for promoting diversity in science. In Madrid, we will have one, uh, 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 one congress that uh, the, the, it's uh, Women in Glass, Art and Science. That will be in, in May. It's a, a focus in, in Ibero-America. This is a Spain and Portugal and all Latin America. The language will be Spanish. Mm -hmm. And so it will be possible really to, uh, to attend in person and, uh, and online. And it will be in, in the, because it's the 20th anniversary of the Contemporary Museum of Glass in, in Alcorcón. After um, Berlin, that is in July, the next big one is the closing. That will be in Japan, in Tokyo, okay. the 8th and the 9th of December. And we will have a type of balance conference in New York. But ba balance, uh, you mean? Uh, well, to make a balance, uh, really, a summary, and okay. uh, like a report, uh, okay. really. Also, the U.S. has a, a main uh, um, type of Congress, that mm -hmm. is uh, the U.S. Glass Day, mm -hmm. that uh, it will be from 3 to 8 April in Washington. And in uh, in U.S., it will be at least three conferences on, or Congress uh, on art, art museums, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, they will be also, in, uh, at the end of April, it will be uh, a congress in El Cairo. Mm -hmm. uh, on uh, It's a call from pharaohs to high technology, mm -hmm. really celebrating the, uh, uh, the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the Tutankhamun tomb. Mm -hmm. And uh, they will uh, make uh, the formal uh, inauguration of the new uh, um, Egypt, uh, uh, Egyptian uh, museum that uh, is uh, in, in the pyramids. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. okay. Are, are, you, are you going to be traveling all year? You're going yeah, to be flying yeah, to yeah, all yeah. of these places? I think, yes, yes. <laughs> are you yes. ready? Are you feeling yes, ready for that? I have a, a, a check-in the, <laughs> the, the, the dates, uh, really, because uh, they are many. And then at the uh, regional or national levels, there will be a lot uh, mm. of, uh, of uh, activities. Imagine, yeah. They are, well, really many, many uh, conferences uh, uh, all, all around, uh, really, and uh, 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 a lot of difference. They are, for example, we have also a, a, a team uh, uh, focusing education, and the, the, the idea really is to, to produce materials uh, uh, related to glass for small, mm -hmm. uh, from, the, from the first primary school, really to give the idea of uh, the importance on the role of, of glass. Earlier on, you mentioned that it's important to have 
diversity in this research field. And, and also when you were the, the president of the International Commission, mm-hmm. that was one of your key things that you wanted. You wanted to promote especially more uh, young women and girls working yeah, in yeah, the yeah, field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, is, that, is that improving, do you think, that situation? Well, this is a, a, a really something is moving in the, in the, in the companies also. A, a, well, I'm a feminist and uh, I am a, a, I have been during all my life a great defender of women uh, uh, rights really and the position of of women in 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 science you know in 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 science is very well known the glass ceiling what is uh, <laughs> literally the glass, the glass ceiling is a, a, a well a phenomenon really that uh, well women are more than forty percent in the in the low well in the uh, in the PhD uh, for example or postdocs or in the in the first ago they are well. M- m- about uh, uh, really 40-45%, but uh, this uh, percentage diminishes uh, when uh, uh, you go like to... the leaky to pipeline. Be, uh, the, this is the leaky pipeline, mm-hmm. really. And, uh, well, we have, uh, for example, in the, uh, the, the, the Spanish Research Council, is uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the organist in all Europe, really, with the highest uh, percentage in, uh, in, in research professor. But... Uh, we, uh, we, we cannot uh, go farther than 24%. But uh, in the companies, it, it's worse, uh, really. But uh, uh, something is moving, really. Why? Because there are a lot of arguments. They, there is not uh, really a, a question of social fair, really. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, uh, there are many uh, uh, studies uh, from many agencies that uh, prove that uh, the diversity uh, really in the in 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 the councils of uh, uh, and in the di- directions uh, they uh, um, reflect uh, in better revenues for example it, it leads to more diverse mm-hmm. ways of thinking now and more creative mm-hmm. solutions yes 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 because uh, they are different point of view mm-hmm. different and uh, from this uh, well it's uh, it's uh, more difficult really to manage this uh, diverse uh, uh, groups, but the results are much better, better. And they are really important numbers. For example, depending on, on the field, they are really up to 30% higher revenues, for example. In mm-hmm. So it's not a goal to, to, to reach really in, uh, in, in two years, but something is moving. And for example, we, we have, it was very funny, really, in 2018, in the, in the Congress, it was a totally basic Congress, the, the physics of non-crystalline solids, perhaps you know it, it was in, in, in France, and we make a demonstration in the, in the, in the dinner, because women, we were 50% of attendance, and only 10% uninvited talks. After the talks or the dinner? Yeah, no, we, we made the demonstration okay. in the dinner. Ah, okay, in sorry. the dinner, we gather so all, only, only we put, we stand and yeah. we had a, a, a picture and okay. we say, we are half of the attendance and we only have 10% of the uh, of the invited. Uh, and what, what was the impact of the? Well, it that? was uh, it, it was uh, very important. It was uh, disseminated and and from ICG, we uh, uh, we have uh, changed a lot uh, really because 
all the congresses of ICG need, when I was the president, I say, I want to uh, 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 approve these if they are no parity. And the, uh, the International Congress on Glass, uh, that they are, the ICG has uh, uh, all the three years uh, an international congress. In the last, uh, in 2019, really in, in Boston, it was for the first time uh, 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 50% of uh, women and men in, the, uh, in all the, the things. It was uh, for the first time, and so it's uh, the example to follow. Good luck with organising everything throughout oh, the year. Thank you, thank you a lot, uh, a lot uh, really. Uh, uh, I think I will survive. Uh, because, uh, <laughs> it's going to be last, a lot of travel. The last weeks uh, has been really crazy. Because, uh, well, with the Omicron, we, have, uh, we had mm. uh, really to reorganise and, uh, and contact everyone, and the people began to uh, 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 really to doubt uh, about uh, the... I suppose you, you have to be flexible throughout yeah, the whole yeah, year. That's, yeah. that's and the name so of the game. We have only to listen and uh, to, to chat, really. The restrictions are these, and so, but, uh, well, the... Uh, uh, we have uh, work a lot, but uh, it's, uh, it's quite easy to uh, to work uh, when people around you is happy. <laughs> this is very <laughs> good philosophy. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Alicia Duran, Kim Eggleton, Jonas Zuner, Tammy Freeman, and James Dacey for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks with Marcus Bueller of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is translating living structures into sound, and vice versa. He's already created harmonies informed by the structure of spider webs, which could help uncover the secrets of spider silk. And more recently, his team translated the spike protein of the SARS. COV-2 coronavirus into sound to visualize its vibrational properties. This episode of Stories is called Music from Our Material World, and it can be found on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.